You can subscribe to this show by way of the subscribe at Substack button at truthjihad.com. Hey, welcome back. This is the second hour of tonight's Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, talking about all kinds of issues from across a broad spectrum of perspectives, helping you to make up your own mind about what's really going on. And that's certainly not what the mainstream megaphone wants you to do. They want you to pretty much just internalize what they say and uh, never question the orders you're being given. Well, we're going to question things in this hour. We're going to move. We're moving from the discussion of the U.S. first strike nuclear posture and all the horrors associated with that with uh, Dave Lindorf in the first hour. And he, of course, argued that Ted Hall, the American physicist who took U.S. nuclear secrets to the Soviet Union and created mutual assured destruction, thereby preventing the U.S. from massacring tens of millions of Russians uh, in a first strike, that perhaps that's not the only case of a heroic, treasonous American stealing nuclear secrets. Because maybe Donald Trump, who has been accused of stealing nuclear secrets from the White House and secreting them in his safe at Mar-a-Lago, is doing something similar. Maybe Donald Trump is a great hero like Ted Hall. Maybe Donald Trump is stealing the nuclear papers that show that the U.S. has a first-strike posture and is planning to launch a nuclear war by hitting first with nuclear weapons. If the American people knew this fact, which is totally unassailable, they would rise up and revolt, and maybe Trump is planning to lead that revolt, or maybe not. But uh, I'm going to bring on somebody who always has a positive perspective on pretty much everything Trump does, unlike me. That's my good friend and former campaign manager, Rolf Lindgren, a current Republican Party official here in Dane County, Wisconsin. So, hey, Rolf Lindgren, how's it going? Hey, how's it going, Kevin? Great to be back on the show. Yeah, good to have you, too. So, you know, when I heard that, that Trump was being accused of stealing nuclear secrets, uh, of course, I, I couldn't resist writing my parody article about Trump planning to build a Lego H-bomb in the basement of Mar-a-Lago. But, you know, seriously, this whole story is, is really strange. And it's only, you know, you have to read between the lines to get the sense that what they're really after appears to be documents that would help Trump in his Russiagate lawsuits against Hillary and other Russiagate conspirators. And James Kunstler wrote a good piece on this. So honestly, I don't think Trump is a nuclear hero trying to expose nuclear secrets that should be exposed as much as I wish that were the case. I think he's probably doing just what Kunstler says and uh, trying to buttress his case in the Russiagate issue and that the bad guy, the other side, is essentially they're trying to grab those documents so Trump doesn't have them. Uh, that's my best guess as to what the heck is going on with this crazy raid on Mar-a-Lago that obviously backfired in the primary elections Tuesday. Uh, what, what's your take? Okay, well, first of all, the, the stuff about the nuclear information is fake news. The The problem is is that none of the documents that that the FBI stole from Trump are classified and none of them are really all that interesting. So they had to just make something up to try to get people to care about it. So that's a good, I guess that's as good as anything. Now the nuclear codes, of course they change those all the time anyway. So like if Trump really did have the nuclear codes, you know, they'd be changed and don't, they have a nuclear football that they pass around. I'm pretty sure that that's not, what Trump had. So it's just fake news. As far as the Russiagate theory, I, I, you know, I have a different theory on this. If I was Trump, 
I would I would know that the, that I could be raided at any time, right? So you'd be ready for it. So you, would you really keep something that you didn't want the FBI to get? I think that what's more likely is if you're uh, an, if you're a, like a military leader, an executive leader, someone like Trump, if you you're going to have a lot of people around you and you don't really know maybe who who you can trust. Like remember when you had John Bolton, what you do is you give you pass out fake news or fake information to somebody and then you only give it to one person. So if you tell some fake information to John Bolton and then it's in the Washington Post, then you know where it came from. So I think I think that there's people in at Mar-a-Lago in and out, you know, maybe maybe Trump, you know, acted like he in a low unguarded moment said, Yeah, I got I got some really good stuff in my safe about the about the Russia gate. You say, you know, and then the person goes and tells the FBI about it. And then, then now you know who the person was who did it. So, so, so it's a total setup by Trump. You're saying? I, I think that the it's a it's a showdown between Trump and the FBI. I think what what happened was that when Trump left the White House, he declassified everything. Then the government is always looking for some excuse to charge Trump with a crime. <laughs> you know, they're always looking for something. So they say, hey, let's let's charge him with taking with unclassified documents someone thought that idea up and then they you know they were telling trump to turn over these documents for the last 18 months and then trump wouldn't said you know i'm not going to do it i'm not turning those back over those are those are declassified and the someone else said no they are classified so they said screw it and then they raided trump so it's sort of like calling your bluff um i think that trump was ready for the raid um, I think that Trump ha- has documents that he wants to use either for his memoirs, for true social, and he's going to reap many benefits uh, from this. First of all, true social is probably getting tons of new traffic because of all the publicity, and it's going to be used all through this case. Trump is posting stuff on true social right now. He's got a major um, legal motion that he's going to be filing. Regarding the Fourth Amendment, well, that's the first thing that, that a defense lawyer usually does when you, someone gets raided is you file a motion to throw out the search warrant, right? That's a common tactic. With Trump, he's going to have all kinds of issues that normal people wouldn't have, like selective prosecutor. Not maybe or normal people may have these issues, but they wouldn't be able to prove them or or get anyone to listen. But things like selective prosecution, the people raiding his house are already under investigation by Durham. The judge is biased because he's a, a Epstein crony who donated to Obama and wrote anti-Trump hatred on his yeah, Facebook wait, 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 page. What's with that? What's with the judge going from the prosecution side to the Epstein defendant side overnight? That was really, really strange. Probably because he was probably a plant. And then what, what What better defense would you, I mean, wouldn't it be great if you, in the middle of the trial, the prosecutor switched to your side? I mean, I, would they even normally allow that? I mean, that sounds pretty weird, but it sounds like a pretty good deal for the defendant, right? Because then he can tell you all the stuff that the prosecution is, is doing. It's a great deal for Epstein to have the prosecutor flip, right? And, of course, Epstein was probably some sort of agent who was working with the government anyway, like providing sexual services for for big shots, you know they're trying to get a deal done. They're trying to bri- blackmail someone 
you use Epstein as the guy is the go-to guy, right? And you can only, but you can only run an operation like that for so long before you have to pull the plug on it. So that that's what Epstein was. He's sort of like a, you know, like a drug dealer who provides the football team. There's one guy in the football team who knows a drug dealer, and then he ends up provide, you know, hooking up half the team, either that or steroids or something. Well, Epstein was like the sex guy to hook up, hook people up, you know, get a deal done. We need a couple three billion dollar deal done. Here's a okay. I'll hook you up with Epstein if you if you sign it. Okay. Well, he's also a a most. And of course, later you can blackmail him if if they do it. So. So the judge is suspect. Mark Garland is suspect because he was turned down by Trump for the Supreme Court. Then you're going to have issues of whether the evidence is. For, well, first of all, if the if the documents are declassified, which I have I have information from my sources who talked to Trump's lawyers. You know, the, the lawyer said, no, this stuff was declassified. And that's what they signed a paper back in June that the stuff is already declassified. So if the stuff is declassified, then they have no probable cause to do the raid. So the the crux of the case is going to be argued about right at the beginning on the search warrant. Trump Trump knows that the best defense is a good offense. He's he's going to be challenging the search warrant. He's already got the the search warrant declassified. You know, declassified. He's now he's trying to get the affidavit declassified. He's also going to try to get the ju- uh, the magistrate to be recused, kicked off the case. He's going to try to get Merrick Garland kicked off the case so he can recuse. He'll probably get Christopher Ray. He'll go for that. For, so he's going to go for these recuse. Those are great motions because then it gives fodder for Fox News and other people to talk about how crooked the whole thing and all the conflicts of interests. So Trump has all kinds of different ammunition. He also has the videotape of the search. And remember, the search was done when they went in there. They said, turn off the, the videos, and they, they Trump's team did not do that. Eric Trump already said inappropriate behavior was was observed on the video. So we don't know what that is. They're going to roll that stuff out. And then people will argue about whether the video has been edited or not. And then they'll just roll out a little bit more, you know, and then a little bit more. And they can put it up on True Social to get more traffic on True Social. That's worth money to Trump. So the whole thing is, you're is saying, a big, it's basically a, a Trump publicity stunt. Well, it's not a – well, Trump the, – the FBI was trying to do a publicity stunt too. Let's see, see what the FBI does is they raid – here's what they do. They raid your house and scare the bejesus out of you. Then they leak stuff to the news media for the next six months until everybody thinks you're guilty. And then after everybody thinks you're guilty, then they charge you with a crime. That's that's how the FBI operates. And they use this they use this operation on everybody. The problem is, is that Trump is such a powerful force in our society that it's simply not going to work against Trump. It's not going to work. So, so what, what crime are they setting him up for? Because if, if, as you say, that there's nothing particularly sensitive or embarrassing in these papers that Trump took home to Mar-a-Lago, and if the FBI knew that, then they would be complete idiots. And they can say that the papers are so secret we can't tell you what they are, and Trump broke the law, but since they're so secret and sensitive, 
we can't have them declassified. But see, obviously, that's not going to work. That's a that's a bad strategy. So, I mean, the well, way you're describing this, this all the, the FBI time. would have to be incredibly incompetent. Well, they've been doing this. To, they do it to everybody else, and they get away with it. Because then they then they get you found guilty, and then they put you in jail, and the stuff is still is still classified or whatever it is. But in this case, it's not. It isn't going to work. And, they, and they, maybe they are incredibly stupid in this case. I mean, I don't. I wouldn't call them incredibly stupid. But this is how they. This is their tactic that they use, and and typically people will go with the same tactic that works over and over again until it stops working. So that that's their tactic. Now another problem with the tactic is if they leak stuff to the media, then some Trump's lawyers are going to file a motion and say, wait a minute now, if you leaked it to the Washington Post, then maybe it isn't as sensitive as you said it was, right? I mean, they're already leaking stuff. Someone's already leaking stuff. The New York Times, or let's see, uh, a Justice Department official told CBS News that they did not seize the passport. And how do we know that? Because it wasn't in the listed list of items seized. Therefore, Trump is a liar. And then, of course, then they returned the passport a couple of days later. That was So that was bo- a, a bogus information. Another uh, Newsweek reported that Merrick Garland had nothing to do with the search warrant. It was done by a low-level magistrate. Of course, then that turned out not to be true. Or uh, maybe it wasn't. I mean, they say it's they say he was involved in it. You know, it's possible there was some screw up and he's now saying that he was involved in it. It could it could have been a screw up by a, a zealous low level judge who then who maybe wanted to get Trump really bad and went and maybe Mark, maybe the upper levels were afraid to to do the to trust the Rubicon. And then they, the guy did it. And then after they did it, then the guy, the American, so I better just say that I did it because if I say that I didn't involve myself, then that'll look really stupid. So, you know, it's possible that some low level, lower level person screwed up their strategy. That happens. That happens in, 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 in football games. It happens in wars. And it may have happened here when they, when they, but they did cross the Rubicon now there's been a there's a big difference between when Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon and when the FBI crossed the Rubicon. Do you know what the difference is? Well, what what, what do you mean by the FBI crossing the Rubicon exactly? Well, they they they, they searched a former president's house. I see. And they didn't. They, we don't even know what what crime they're accused of. It's 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 a it's a big step to. It's I mean it's it's a it's a phrase. It means you make a a step where there's a point. Of, You've crossed the point of no return. See, when when Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon, everybody, all the enemies of Julius Caesar fled the country or surrendered. Okay, that's what happened in 49 B.C. You know what happened when when the FBI crossed the Rubicon? Well, last I checked, nobody's fled the country or surrendered. Instead, the defense is rallying behind President Trump to defend him from the... Well, of course, the anti forces would, would argue that Trump's the one that is crossing the Rubicon with his January 6th, uh, his, his whole uh, claim to have won the election and have been deprived of victory and all of that. So there, there are, the mainstream position on this seems to be that Trump's crossing the Rubicon and trying to make himself dictator. And they're admitting that this FBI raid seems to be playing into Trump's hands. The uh, major New York Times columnist wrote that it looks like they, the FBI just handed Trump another term 
so it, it seems like there's a, a widespread sense that this raid has totally backfired. But the mainstream position, of course, is that the problem is that Trump is trying to set himself up as some kind of authoritarian strongman or dictator, and he's, he's the one who's breaking the democratic norms and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's just fake news, though. They, what they're afraid of is the New World Order is afraid that he'll do a lot more. than In, in his first term, he was essentially limited to executive orders and tweets and appointing judges, okay? And he did get some legislation through early in his presidency. He got the uh, tax cut, and he got the First Step Act, which reduced the nonviolent prison population. He, he got those two bills through only because the Cook brothers helped him get it through, because the Cook brothers actually don't li- didn't like Trump. They don't like Trump, but they did agree with him on those two things. His second two years, he... He got nothing done through legislation. If Trump gets back in the White House, the people, these people know that Trump will be able to get stuff through Congress. He could get, instead of getting two bills through Congress, he could get 100 bills through Congress. He could roll back legislation all over the place on every, every major part of the government, from the, from the border to taxes, regulations, the EPA, you know, all this stuff, the FBI, the DOJ, he could he could get stuff passed through. He could ask a guy like Rand Paul. Here's an example. Let's say Trump's the president in 2025. He's got a Republic, a pro Trump Republican Congress. He says to Rand Paul, you know what? I need a list of 130 government agencies we don't need anymore. OK, so Rand Paul gives him a list. Then he takes that list and gives it to Kevin McCarthy and says, pass a bill that gets rid of all these government agencies. That could happen if Trump gets reelected. Well, you know, I think the deep state maybe doesn't is a little worried about that. But what they're obviously most worried about with Trump is that he wasn't really reliable on foreign policy. Specifically, he wanted to pull out of Afghanistan, Syria, and Iraq. And I recently saw Douglas McGregor talking about this with Judge Napolitano, and uh, McGregor pointed out that Trump actually issued an order for withdrawal from those three countries uh, after the election and before you know the January 6th period, and that basically they all refused to carry out his orders, and then he backed down. So my question would be, do you think that Trump's uh, pursuit of this, this uh, you know, America first kind of withdrawal from imperial ambitions to rule the world, is this something that he's capable of actually trying to do if he gets reelected? It depends on the Senate. Okay, now in a, nor- in a, in a parliamentary system of government, the prime minister Prime Minister can do whatever he wants as long as a majority of the parliament doesn't disagree. In our system of government, you can do whatever you want as long as you can't get two-thirds of the Senate to disagree. Well, he's the problem is, is he can withdraw troops, can't he? He, he could, but then he could be removed from office. If, if he can get 67 senators to remove him from office, then he then he's not even in office anymore. Right, but see, they got he, up tried, to he tried to do this in December of 2020 after he was a lame duck and the deep state refused to obey his orders. And then he yeah. backed down. There was no worry because, about it. Because they were already up to 57 senators that voted to remove him from office and, and, and possibly to ban him from running again. So he had to back, he had to back down because it was a power 
it was a power situation and he didn't have the power. But in in hindsight, it's better that he wasn't in office anyway, because now it looks like we have a red wave coming. Um, if Trump had been president right now, he'd be getting he wouldn't be getting much done anyway, because the the Congress still isn't pro-Trump. I mean, it's 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 Democrat controlled. And he also lost Twitter. Now he's able to restart his own organization, True Social, and he's going to be a lot stronger in the next presidency than he would have been this time. So it's actually better that he that he didn't get reelected. In fact, I think that once that virus came along, he knew that it was screwed everything up. See, what he was trying to do in the 2020 elections was make a big victory and take over Congress and get some nice majorities in Congress and then start implementing policies. But then once that virus came, he knew that it was 50-50 just to win the election and he wasn't going to pick up big margins in Congress because the the virus creamed everything he had going. It screwed up the economy. It took out away his giant uh, campaign events. It allowed Joe Biden to campaign from his basement it screwed up the John Durham probe and it also just opened up the door to blame Trump for the virus. I mean, people were blaming Trump. It's Trump's fault that the virus came along. He didn't, he didn't uh, have enough mask mandates or something. So there was all kinds of bad things with that virus because normally the person in charge gets blamed when something bad happens. So what I think he did is, is, he he has now been able, by losing the election, he's been able to turn voter fraud into another major issue in, in, in his base. His base includes, of course, people who want to drain the swamp, people who want crackdown on illegal immigration. And now you're adding in people who are worried about voter fraud, which which, ma- which massively increases his coalition. So now he's he's better. He's set better than ever to run for president in 2024. Of course, just, the, the, po- the poll numbers uh, tell a kind of an ambivalent story that yeah, he's I, ahead I, of Biden in the polls, and especially yeah, in the past. How far ahead is he at Biden now? You know what? I've seen polling where he's up by eight to 10 percent really? in the battleground states. OK, yeah, I didn't see that. I saw like nationwide. He was up like one or two percent or something like that. And nationwide. But if you look at the key battleground states, he's he's way ahead and he's also even more ahead of Kamala Harris, who's even weaker than Biden by a significant amount. And the, like I said, is Joe Biden really going to run for president again? Um, you know, I, I guess I guess it's possible because they don't have any other candidates. Some people think Gavin Newsom would be their best candidate. He's he's a good he's a good candidate, and the fact that he's a very personable guy. You know, decent looking guy, kind of slick. You know, he's a friendly talking guy. And so maybe he would be their candidate. And then again, he's from California. So, you know, the whole campaign will be this guy wants to turn the whole country into California. So, yeah, you know, well, I, I don't know what they're I don't know what they're really going to yeah. do. They don't have very many good candidates. Probably most of my listeners can't get very excited about any of these candidates. And I do know some folks who think somewhat similarly to the way I do, who may not be too crazy about Trump, but basically want to vote for Trump uh, and elect Trump 
because they see him as the accelerationist candidate. That is, Trump is basically blowing up the system, and the system is so corrupt that the only way to fix it is basically to blow it up. Because if you put Trump in there, then these these anti-Trump forces are so extreme and hysterical that there's going to be a showdown, and that showdown is likely to sort of open up space for radical change. So that's one perspective that I find interesting. I'm not sure if I agree with it. I'm not sure if there's any hope for the system at all. Uh, and I'm not sure if tearing it down is actually. Well, Liz Cheney was on TV all year, and she got 29% of the vote. So she's done. Another another idiot who's gone is this uh, Brian Stelter from CNN. He's gone. And another guy who's gone from this this week is Jeffrey Tubin, the guy whose legal opinions are always every single opinion is anti-Trump. Interesting. Every single I'm not one. Sure I agree with it. I'm not sure if there's any hope for the system at all. Uh, and I'm not sure if tearing it down is actually. Well, Liz Cheney was on TV all year, and she got 29 percent of the vote. So she's done. Another another idiot who's gone is this uh, Brian Stelter. Oh, so, sorry. Uh, so Rolf, we only we, we only... okay there. I'm back now. Yeah. Something happened to the connection. Yeah, yeah, we we had a problem. I think uh, we had to mute uh, Jim Fetzer, who's coming on for the second half hour, and we're going to unmute okay. him in just a couple of minutes. But before you go, uh, you, would you agree with that uh, New York Times columnist who said that the FBI may have uh, reelected Trump with their uh, ill-considered raid on Mar-a-Lago? It's just going to be another. It could very well have be true because it just adds to Trump's coalition. People on the fence like you are going to be like, I can tell you right now, if Trump was wasn't against the New World Order, then why did they raid his house? Yeah, well, that, that's the argument that they've given to all of the Trump supporters that made the Trump supporters feel like uh, that, you know, Trump's pose of being always the victim of injustice is, is actually true. Uh, so it, it really does seem highly uh, ill considered from a political standpoint. Um, so anyway, yeah, we'll have to stay in touch, Rolf, uh, and you can yeah, keep, there's keep... a lot of cynical people out there and maybe they'll, they'll jump on the Trump train after seeing this raid. Okay. Well, we'll see. I'm not, I'm not fully on board the Trump train myself, but, uh, I'm certainly uh, finding the spectacle interesting. Well, thanks, Rolf. We're going to bring on Jim Fetzer now to talk about his crazy court case this week. So, uh, have, have a great, uh, week. I'll, I'll check in with you later and, uh, we'll, we'll see. Uh, what's what's transpiring with the upcoming okay. election? Am I still going to come on next next Friday? Uh, well, we'll we'll have to talk about that off the air. We'll figure that out. Okay. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Right. Take care, Rolf. Yep. Bye bye. Bye. That's Rolf Lindgren. He's a Republican Party operative from Dane County, Wisconsin, and my former campaign manager. The Republican Party is is definitely getting a little more interesting than it used to be. Okay, let's let's bring on uh, Jim Fetzer. Jim Fetzer really doesn't need much of an introduction for most of my listeners. He and Alex Jones have both been targeted by defamation lawsuits by Sandy Hook self-styled survivors. And uh, in all cases, it seems like there has never been much of a real defamation trial where uh, Jim and or Alex could put forth a legal defense by claiming that they didn't lie and that they whatever they said, right or wrong, never rose to the standard of reckless uh, disregard for truth. But those trials never really happened. Judges 
just summarily uh, rubber stamped the version of events of the plaintiffs. And uh, it's really quite a travesty of justice. And now Jim is here to report on uh, an even more bizarre sort of uh, permutation of his case. The judge had awarded Lenny Posner, the Sandy Hook survivor that was uh, given a big uh, defamation award last year, uh, all Jim's book, Nobody Died at Sandy Hook, four different copyright versions of it, plus four different website domains. Now, none of this stuff has any clear monetary value, and there are no plans whatsoever to sell it or use it to raise any money to pay off the damages. It seems like an irrational, arbitrary, punitive measure from this judge, and I'm uh, kind of shocked. But I, uh, I imagine that, Jim, you probably feel somewhat the same way. So, hey, welcome. How are you? Oh, Kevin, great. Yeah, thanks for uh, featuring. Enjoyed listening to you and Rolf. I uh, think that the timing had to be in coordination with the Alex Jones trial. It was peculiar to me how after so long my case had been resolved that they would bring this motion to take just a couple of months ago, but it turns out the timing was intended to coincide with the Alex Jones trial because they were going to use it to smear not only Alex, but Sophia Smallstorm, James Tracy, Wolfgang Helbig, and me. And they knew that once they started talking about me, even if they were describing me as they did as the, in a message that was supposed to be from Paul uh, Joseph Watson to Alex Jones, we got to stay as far as possible as we can from that batshit crazy fetzer, that people might want to know what that batshit crazy fetzer had to say about Sandy Hook. Well, my blog jamesfetzer.org is a vast repository of information about Sandy Hook. Even if you couldn't get a hold of the book, Nobody Died at Sandy Hook, which faded by the wayside long ago after David Gehari settled with uh, Posner over the lawsuit. Part of his agreement was to no longer sell the book. And they were really coming after me because when Amazon banned it way back in 2015 after it been on sale for nearly a month and sold nearly 500 copies and I released it for free as a PDF, they had to figure out a way to staunch the flow where a friend of mine who follows these believes it's been downloaded for free as a PDF as many as 10 million times. Now, I can't vouch for that number, but I certainly like the idea because I released it for free because I've never cared about money. I've cared about truth and getting the information out. And for any of your audience who may be unaware, I brought together 13 experts uh, on different aspects of Sandy Hook, including six PhDs. We established a school that had been closed by 2008. It was closed with asbestos and other biohazard damage by hurricane there had even been floods. It's in an area susceptible to floods. There was even an additional in 2007. I was unaware of at the time I published a book that there were no students or teachers there and that it was a two-day FEMA drill presented as mass murder to promote gun control. One of the contributors, by the way, Paul Preston, did an interview with Sophia Smallstorm and explained that how he as a school administrator had supervised active shooting drills, and he was so disturbed by what he saw being broadcast from Newtown that day that he reached out to his contacts in the Obama Department of Education, all of whom confirmed to him it had been a drill, no children had been harmed, and it was done to promote gun control. That's right in the book. Can I briefly interrupt you here? Yeah, just to say that if you consider the possibility that the kind of evidence that makes it appear that the school had been closed for years 
with tens of thousands of people in the community who would have known that, uh, that that evidence that you've taken to accept that the school was closed could have been fabricated, and then it's vastly more likely that that's the case as opposed to uh, tens of thousands of people all keeping their mouth shut about a school being closed that they all knew about. No, Kevin, that's just wrong. It was what Sophia said. It was a capstone event. It involved the whole community. My conjecture is that Newtown got over $100 million to conduct this event. It was uh, about six years in the planning. The families were all synthetic. Most of them are not even married to one another. The kids were fictions. They're made up in various ways. The one over of which I was being sued, uh, uh, Noah Posner, was actually a a fiction made out of uh, photographs of the actual son of the man who came here and testified under the name of Leonard Posner, but whose real name is Reuben Vabner. His name is Michael Vabner. And they used photographs of Michael Vabner, who was very telegenic as a child, to be the uh, Noah Posner, who was the subject of the death certificate that I was sued over. Uh, so, I mean, the answer is no, and I, I have done so much research on this, Kevin, and believe me, I know whereof I speak, and the, the community, key players in the community include the head of the Board of Education, the head of the police department, uh, the, the, the town attorney, uh, the head of the bank, I mean, all the, the head of the fire department, the town clerk, who happened to be married, by the way. I mean, I'm just telling you, this whole thing was very much a community affair. Even at that, when a Alex Jones had one, I think it was actually Dan Bongino in his early days, since it was way back in 2012, who was going to neighbors who said they thought it was odd there were any students there because the school had been closed for years. So the answer your question is emphatically no. We established this school had been closed by 2008. If you think two, six PhDs and seven others can't figure out whether school was open or closed, Kevin, I really... Well, I, 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 I just happen to know that whenever that school, that schools are very much public knowledge that if you go to real estate listings online, you can find everything you want to know about the schools. It's the first thing everybody wants to know about when they're looking at places to move, that thousands and thousands of people would have been looking and thinking about moving to and from Sandy Hook. There's no way to hermetically seal off that community. And so that at a minimum, tens of thousands of people would have known what schools were open, what schools were closed. There's no way you could possibly conduct this kind of a fraudulent event like you're saying at such a school that right. it closed for four years. It's it's utterly this, preposterous. And I think you've been fooled by Cass Sunstein's friends who have hoodwinked you and Alex and other people into saying things that have yes. destroyed your credibility and destroyed the credibility of the truth movement in general. Well, well Kevin, I'm sure glad to see you coming out honestly about this because I find this quite shocking. I've always wondered why you seem to be sitting on the fence about Sandy Hook. Makes me wonder if you even ever bothered to read the book, because there's no doubt about it. Even I, I, I read it. It didn't even, even, even participants in the drill have read the book. They like the book because it's honest and it's truthful, and they have no malice toward me because they recognize I've simply been trying to expose the truth here. Unlike others like Alex Jones, or they ha don't have much uh, enthusiasm for Sophia or James Tracy and Wolfgang, seems to have overplayed his hand, but for me, they bear no malice. And I'm just telling you, Kevin, you are the one who's been allowed to play yourself. I'm really kind of embarrassed by this. When you look at all the evidence I massed, we even have the FEMA manual for the drill, for God's sake. We had the FBI report showing no deaths in Newtown 
for murder and non-negligent manslaughter for 2012. That's the FBI. We got the official account from the sta- uh, Stephen Sadinsky III, the Danbury State's attorney, that fails to call. He took a year to do his research. He fails to establish a causal nexus between the purported shooter, Adam Lanza, and the victims he's supposed to have shot. With regard to his mother, no fingerprints on the 22 caliber rifle. With regard to the 20 kids and six adults, they found 150 slugs, which they could not match to the weapon. So it was another forensic failure. If there's ever been one in, uh, like this in history, it would be astonishing. There are no class photos for any kids from uh, Sandy Hook Elementary. You can't find a bake sale. You can't find a teacher of the year. It's not there because it doesn't exist. And the fact is, there were, according to Sadensky, there were 489 students there. Well, if you subtract 20, that meant they had to evacuate 469. We don't even have a list of the enrollment. Where are the names of the 469. Kevin, you have just been suckered into this. I, I'm really kind of shocked and more than slightly disappointed to hear you making these fantastic claims. I go out of my way. I'm very thoroughgoing. I don't make any claims I cannot prove, and I can prove every damn thing I've just said here, which you, alas, cannot. What I was disappointed was that you never got a chance. You never got a chance to actually make these kinds of arguments or any arguments at all in court because there was a, the summary judgment prevented there from being an actual jury trial about the facts of the case. And so that that's really where you know my sympathy for your position really comes in is because uh, that the way the trial was run and similarly with the Alex Jones trial, it was clear that there was never going to be an actual jury trial about the facts of the case. And uh, you know, maybe that's partly the bad defense strategy that you chose, but I think it's obvious that the court didn't want there to be any such trial. So on that point, I would agree with you that the stuff that you're saying, as much as I, I don't accept the evidence for it as being uh, strong enough to prove that it's true or even close, that should have been uh, aired in court. And clearly, well, the judges is, didn't want that to happen. And so that, this, uh, that this, does weigh on, on, you know, weigh on your side. This shows... This, I'll come back to the trial, but this shows how out of touch you are with research. I enlisted Brian Davidson, a PI. Uh, I did an interview with him about uh, research techniques uh, online, and he said even photographs. So I just threw him an anonymous photograph of a crime scene vehicle in the parking lot, asked him to track it down. He know I tracked it down to the magazine where it originally appeared, but he tracked it down to the Connecticut State Police files where he found a veritable bonanza. They've been taking photographs of every aspect of the case. They were running the whole thing behind the scene, and they took photographs of all of it. He has photographs down the hallway where there was supposed to be new bodies. There's nobody there. He has photographs inside classroom 10. There's supposed to have been a stack of bodies there that were left overnight, which was absurd on his face. There's no blood, no pockmarks, nothing there. And the Connecticut State Police not only have hundreds of these photographs, but they've removed all the metadata so they can't be introduced in court. But this one photograph is so stunning. And if anyone goes to my blog, which now since they've taken jamesfetzer.org, you have to go to jameshfetzer.org and look at my most recent pieces about the uh, Alex Jones trial in the Sandy Hook parents, and you'll see the photograph I'm talking about. It is in and of itself definitive that this was a fraud because you've got the crime scene vehicle there in the Sandy Hook parking lot. You've got crime scene tape up already. you got... Wayne Carver leaning against the wall with his arms full, but 
The windows at Classroom 10 are not damaged. They would, after the event, be shot out, which means this photograph was either taken uh, uh, before the event took place altogether, or if it was taken after the event allegedly took place, they hadn't finished faking faking the proof. Kevin, you just have not done your homework. So, and so, I, I, okay, so you I just got I just got to be emphatic about this. Can I ask you a question about the police report uh, that describes uh, in great detail the police finding the bodies of the children and some wounded children who were then taken away in ambulances and so on and so forth? That police report, just, just let me finish, the police report describes the police finding the body of Adam Lanza, the shooter, or the person that they will later identify as him, handcuffed. Uh, so that is one of several kind of bizarre, one might call them anomalies, in that very detailed police report of what the police found when they entered Sandy Hook School and found all the bodies of these children who had apparently uh, been sort of ru rushed into a bathroom and were then shot uh, while they were squashed together uh, in an extremely crowded fashion in this bathroom. Anyway, I, I don't know if you've read that police report, but I'm wondering what... Why would they produce a police report with such bizarre anomalies as Adam Lanza being found shot dead and in handcuffs and then cl claiming that he shot himself uh, if indeed this whole thing was a complete fabrication? Well, why wouldn't you just take that at face value and say something obviously is terribly wrong here? The fact is you're believing words. For a guy who writes a lot, you ought to realize you can write up any damn scenario you want. They had a script for Sandy Hook. They spent a lot of time... Uh, working it out, but it was done in a sloppy way. There were lots of glitches. That's why they've had to resort to the courts to try to slam dunk, you know, home by abusing the law. None of these uh, trials are legitimate. None of them established that anybody had died at Sandy Hook. I sought to interview in, in all three of Alex Jones' trials, making the point that there'd never been a determination that anybody had died in any of these judicial proceedings. They were all settled on procedural grounds. That was also true for Alex Jones. He was found guilty for failing to come forward with, with discovery. Now, Robert Barnes is quite a brilliant guy, has given sensational critiques of that. He's been in the, in the courtroom. He said it was unlike any courtroom he'd ever seen. They had three different cameras there. He got the sense it was a made-for-TV movie. Well, I think he's got it exactly right. Now, yeah. if you find if you find a defendant guilty on procedural grounds, it's nevertheless obligatory upon the plaintiffs to come forward and present the evidence that they suffered the injustices over which they were suing. That was finesse. They just leaped right over it. And indeed, with Neil Heslin, it would have been absurd we had Wayne Carver, the medical examiner, declared during his press conference the parents were not allowed to come into contact with their children, but were identified on the basis of photographs, which I've submitted forever it was very appropriate since they, for the most part, they only existed in the form of photographs. Noah Posner being an illustration where Mona Alexis Presley has found further reason to believe some of the parents used photographs of themselves when they were children. But Neil Heslin claims he held his dying son in his arms. Well, they can't both be true. Either Wayne Car Carver is lying when he said the parents weren't allowed to come in contact with their children, or Neil Heslin was lying when he said he held Jesse in his arms. That the fact of the matter is, while they can't both be true, they can't well, both be Carver false. Well, Carver may have made, made a mistake. That might, that you, one would expect lots of erroneous information <laughs> coming 
from both what? media and officials in this kind of situation in the heat of the moment. Christ almighty, are you this ignorant, Kevin? That's Wayne Carver giving his press conference. It's all recorded on video saying the parents weren't allowed to come into contact. That's Neil Heslin in a lawsuit prior to this one declaring that he held his son Jesse in his arms when he yeah, died. I would tend to, I would tend to believe Neil and not Wayne. I would, oh, I would tend to believe God. that Wayne Wayne gave a very bizarre press conference, and you know he looked like he was on drugs or in a state of shock. And I wouldn't and necessarily expect any accurate information or, or a whole lot of it from that press conference. Wayne, that Wayne, Wayne, Carver gave. Wayne, Wayne Carver, because he was a state of Connecticut medical examiner with a glue that had the whole thing to, together. I mean, it's just ridiculous. He admitted in Las Vegas, according to one report, when people approached him that it had just been a drill, and it had just been a drill. The fact that you'd have porta potty set up in advance, they'd have pizza and bottled water at the firehouse, there'd be a sign, everyone must check in. It says right in the manual, everyone must check in with a controller so they can pay them off. Yet everyone there wearing name tags on lanyards. I've, I've asked police about whether this resembled a crime scene, and they found it was ludicrous. Yet parents bringing children to the scene. No parent is going to bring a child to the scene of a child shooting massacre. And then, and then the, the day of the event, there was no surge of EMTs into the building. There was no string of ambulances to rush the little bodies off to hospitals. They didn't even call a medevac uh, chopper, which they do even for drills. They put out a triage tarp, but there were no bodies dead or wounded put on the triage tarps. The, the, there was no how, how, how do you know all of this, Jim, when, when there are official repeat police reports describing children being taken off in ambulances? What makes you say well, that well, that didn't happen? Because I've followed this damn thing that Victims and Drive, which was the only way in and out, Kevin was so clogged you couldn't have got an emergency vehicle in there if you wanted to. Not only that, but the police said the evacuation was taking place at specific locations and times. We have dash cam footage for those locations and times, and there's no evacuation taking place. The school had been abandoned. It was in terrible shape. We've had all kinds of confirmation since. We've put up videos where oh, I don't know, 10 months or so, and school teachers were saying that's what they do with abandoned schools. They they use them for storage. In Classroom 10, all the furniture was pushed up against the wall, against the windows. It bore no semblance of functional school. It wasn't decorated for Christmas. This was 14 December. There are no Christmas or Hanukkah decorations there. And as I told you before, you go back over the history, there are no class photographs of students who graduate from Sandy Hook. There are none. And if you dig in, you'll find none of the teachers who, who allegedly taught there, with one exception, even had a teaching credential. And you'll, you'll dig into it. You'll find like a Scarlett Lewis and Jesse Haslin are not even married, Scott, uh, uh, Kevin. You have just blown it here so bad. Most of these families don't even know each other. This was a totally fabricated event, and I guarantee you, I know whereof I speak. Okay, well, we, we've talked about this many times, but what we haven't talked about is what happened in court this week. And I think we both tend to agree that this bizarre well, judge's order taking your intellectual property supposedly to satisfy a monetary judgment when that intellectual property could not possibly be used to actually satisfy that monetary judgment, even in part, is just bizarre and extremely unjust and raises questions about the court. So am I getting this right, that actually yeah. they, they seized your intellectual property and they're not trying to sell it, they're not trying to convert it into cash that could be used to reduce the judgment against you, they're simply just taking it, giving it to Lenny Posner, and, and that's not reducing your judgment by one penny. How, how can they justify that? 
Kevin, in my opinion, they can't. The whole thing is a sham. You're absolutely right. Here you're on firm ground. It's a statutory law. You cannot take anything but money or something having financial value to satisfy a financial judgment. I got 1.1 million in financial judgments against me. But, but not only is it the case that he's not using it for that purpose, he's actually estoppel. There's a judicial doctrine of estoppel that having won a lawsuit, you cannot reverse your position in order to benefit from that lawsuit financially. It's called estoppel. That means he could not judicially take my the book or he could not take the the blogs. I mean, look, the, he, took four, he took four domain names. I didn't even own any of these. JamesFetzer.org, JamesFetzer.net, FalseFlags.org, FalseFlags.net. I own none of them. Dave Gehari, home, JamesFetzer.org. But but I own none of them. In the book, I thought that Dave owned the book, but it turned out he'd never formally copyrighted it, so, written it. So they argued that I had the common law copyright. Now, think about it. I was sued for three sentences in a 440-page book that were found by the court to be defamatory. And the fact is, the court excluded my evidence systematically from the beginning. He would not allow me to introduce all the evidence I had in this massive compilation I wasn't allowed to introduce the 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 FEMA manual. I was the FBI. All that the judge just set it aside as unreasonable. It's got this peculiarity in Wisconsin, Kevin, that uh, under summary judgment rules of Wisconsin, the judge is entitled to make decisions about proposed facts by a party and decide whether or not they're reasonable in his subjective opinion. And if he declares they're unreasonable, he can just set them aside as though they did not exist. You can only have a summary judgment if there are no disputed facts. But in this case, my my position and that of the legal fiction Leonard Posner could not have been more opposite. I was asserting it was a FEMA drill. Nobody died. I had the manual. I had the FBI report. I had the problems with the official account, the whole bit, all the correspondence of events on the ground with what you expect if it were a FEMA event, uh, because it's standard for FEMA exercise. They provide refreshments and restrooms. It's standard. They identify everyone on color-coded name tags on manuals. And, of course, parents would bring children to a, to a, to a, a FEMA drill because they treat it as a festive occasion when no parent would bring a child to a child shooting massacre. And then the events on the ground, no surgery. Well, wait, wait, wait a minute. No... Parent, parents would bring a child to a FEMA drill purporting to be a famous child shooting. When that, when those child's grow, when those children grow up, uh, aren't they going to start scratching their heads over? Wait a minute, my parents took me to a FEMA drill, and uh, and now everybody believes that it was a real massacre, but I know that it wasn't. Wouldn't that put them in kind of a difficult position? Well, they're kids. It depends on the age. Actually, there are any number of participants who'd like to have their lives back because they're having to continue to live the lie that this was a real shooting when it was just a charade. So, so, so how I'm many getting... of them have confessed or talked about this? I mean, even CIA people well, like David Sanchez heaven, Morales heaven, would heaven, spout off against heaven, about their participation heaven, in the JFK assassination. they signed 10-year... They signed 10-year non-disclosure agreements, which are about to expire. So we may have that happening. I don't know what it would take to convince you. I would have thought long since you'd realize it was a, a FEMA drill, since I've had so much evidence. I've presented it so many times. But let me return to the court case. I was I was puzzled as to why they were making this sudden rush to take control of my blog and, and the book, 
when he couldn't do anything with it. I mean, you're quite right. I mean, he can't, uh, and he's even judicially estoppeled. And I had all this in my briefs and my motion for reconsideration because a, a gross error of the law had been uh, committed here in the motion to stay because I have a petition before the United States Supreme Court that's going to be heard in conference on the 28th. I'll know by October 3rd whether or not they're actually going to issue a writ and get all the documents and records from Wisconsin. I believe it's going to happen because I'm raising a question about the whole summary judgment methodology that allows the judges, based on their subjective opinion, to exclude evidence to determine facts or not facts because they don't agree with them. I mean, it's absurd in, yeah. the, in, the, in the appellate court the, the review of my appeal of this case. They said in consecutive paragraphs, it's reasonable to believe Adam Lanza shot his mother, then shot 20 kids and six adults and blah, blah, blah. And it even said right there in the summary that Neil Heslin held his dying child in his arms. They don't note that Wayne Carver had said that the parents weren't allowed to come into contact with their children. And then in the following paragraph, they say it's not reasonable to believe it was a FEMA drill, uh, you know, a, a two-day FEMA drill presented as mass murder to promote gun control. Well, how could two positions more, be more opposite? And yet they claim there were no disputed facts here because a judge is entitled to simply suppress those he doesn't like. I mean, that's basically what it comes down to. So when I got through all this and figured out what the hell had happened to me, because it was so disparate from what I'd expected of a summary judgment, or from everything I'd read, you're supposed to take all of the defendant's assertions as true, and then ascertain whether or not the plaintiff who is suing agrees with all of those assertions by the defendant. And if he does not agree, then it has to go to a jury trial to resolve the disputed facts. But in this case, the judge was simply able to put all my facts to one side and declare there were no disputed facts and rule in, in favor of the plaintiff, even though I had, of all things, two forensic document experts who agreed with me on my position, which is a standard way in which courts of law, you decide on the authenticity of documents. You got document experts. Well, I didn't have just one. I had two, which he simply set aside as unhelpful, even though the whole case was focused on the authenticity of this document. So he just set aside the document. I mean, it's absurd. It's a legal absurdity from beginning to end. It was only after I was turned down by the Wisconsin Supreme Court, they wouldn't even review, that I realized that there was something wrong with the, with the methodology used in Wisconsin. It came out not only in relation to the uh, Court of Appeals decision, which was so blatant, but in the circuit court judge's opinion on the post-verdict motions where he was just explaining again and again that what I was saying was unreasonable, unreasonable, unreasonable. I did not realize at the time that that entitled him to set all my evidence aside and just discount it because it was unreasonable. Now, what I have done then is contrast what happens in Wisconsin with what happened in Texas because Texas has a proper summary judgment in my case it would have either been thrown out or sent to a jury trial. I would have been dealt, dealt with appropriately. But in Wisconsin, you can violate my Seventh Amendment right to a trial by jury and my Fourteenth Amendment right to equal justice under the law to due process, which is supposed to be uniform across all the states. It turns out that this summary judgment is a problem for the American judicial system. I've teed it up for them to 
to knock it out of the park. I predict they're going to take my case and they're going to rule in my favor and reverse all this. But so when, when, do you, when do you find out about when the Supreme Court uh, will, will decide or not to decide to take up the case? October 3rd. October 3rd. Okay. Well, I, I wish you the best with that, Jim. And I, I share your outrage about your uh, being barred from providing your side of the story. And I, I think you actually would have had a good defense, regardless of what, whether your version of Sandy Hook or the, is right or not, uh, simply by putting forward the evidence that led you to say the things that you've said. But you're never allowed to do that, and that is definitely unjust. So anyway, keep up the great work. Tim Fetzer, uh, I, I do admire your uh, courage and stuff. Thank you for listening to Revolution.